0: Hello and welcome to the Relationship Breakthrough Show from Aligned with Love. I'm Matt.
1: And I'm Rebecca. This is the place for people to have a magical, loving, intimate relationship.
0: Thanks for joining us. Now let's get started. What is anxiety? How could anxiety negatively affect our relationship? And what behaviors or reactions could happen as a result of that anxiety? Also, where does the anxiety come from and what can we do to manage it better so that it doesn't become a problem in our relationship? Today, I'm joined by Jenna Overbar, who is an OCD anxiety therapist who loves helping people face their fear and building self-confidence. Jenna values educating her clients and giving them the tools they need to manage their recovery independently. So firstly, Jenna, warm welcome to the show.
1: Awesome, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Me too, I'm excited too, Janet. And I wanted to ask you firstly, how do you define anxiety or OCD and also are they one and the same thing?
1: It's such a great question. Um, There's a lot of debate going on about this currently in the mental health field. So obsessive compulsive disorder and anxiety used to be under the same Kind of category in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM, which is kind of what we use for diagnostic purposes. Um, and when I say anxiety, I'm referring to generalized anxiety disorder. Of course, everyone has to some degree some subclinical levels of anxiety, but if we're talking about disordered behavior, um, you know, OCD versus generalized anxiety disorder, they used to be under the same category recent brain imagery research has shown that ocd may be a little bit different in some ways so with the recent dsm it was categorized into a separate category a lot of us though who know these disorders are really advocating for them to be more so one and the same and so when we're talking about obsessive compulsive disorder this is where someone is really struggling with obsessions so obsessions are these intrusive recurring thoughts, ideas, images, urges, or impulses or feelings um, that are just really experienced as distressing. They don't want to be having these experiences. They kind of come in out of nowhere. And then usually this causes a lot of anxiety, a feeling of discomfort. And so there's some attempt to try to reduce or negate the anxiety that that obsession brings on. And that's where compulsions come in. So some type of mental act or behavioral action that is meant to reduce or negate the anxiety that someone feels from the obsession. Um, And there's a lot of different themes and common kind of subtypes, we call them. These are just really common and kind of traditional presentations that we see. OCD can attack anything. But what I think will be most relevant to this audience will be something that's really common is relationship OCD. So OCD, that kind of latches onto someone's relationship or relationships. It's not always about that romantic partner, but it definitely can be, and that's usually what we see most frequently. But then we have generalized anxiety disorder or anxiety in a more subclinical sense. And that's when we have these worries and um, concerns kind of about more quote unquote, real life or real world concerns or um, circumstances. Some examples of that would be like the health of your loved ones, the state of the world, the future, fearfulness of making a mistake. But all of that is to say, while they are separate, um, specifically in the DSM, there's a lot of parallels. There's so much overlap, Mm -hmm. many of which come back to worry and this need to get rid of it somehow. It's very persistent and it tends to get worse over time.
0: I see, I see. Thanks for clarifying that. And I, I just, to, just to come back to what you said about there being a subclinical level of this thing called anxiety, this could, this could be people's general worries of, oh, my partner's coming back a bit later than I thought, and I'm just on edge a bit thinking about where they might be. Um, how would you define that line, Jenna, between what could be as you say subclinical or just an everyday level of anxiety and then when it becomes something that's a bigger problem
1: right And, and the example that you gave is so perfect right so this normal kind of you know very typically to be experienced in a relationship you know i don't know where my partner is that's leaving me on edge um and so there's always going to be some level of doubt, especially when we're talking about a relationship, right? There's always some element of uncertainty, especially when you're just first starting to get to know each other. Um, also, you know, when the honeymoon phase starts to fall off and maybe you're not feeling 100% in love with them all the time, like you used to, um, there's these elements of doubt for every relationship. Um, And anxiety is not necessarily a bad thing. Without anxiety, we wouldn't be called to spend certain time on things. We wouldn't be called to pay attention to certain things. So anxiety is not necessarily bad. We all have some level of anxiety where it goes haywire and where it can potentially become um you know disordered is we look at a couple different things first of all we look at the amount of time that that worry and anxiety and the obsessions or the intrusive experiences are taking up throughout the day Um, specifically in the dsm it's one plus hour Um, i think that's really difficult to kind of capture when you're talking about worry because it can kind of be so fleeting and come and go um but that's just a generic kind of, you know, concept for people, you know, one hour plus a day might be disordered, but we more importantly look at clinical distress and then impairment. So clinical distress would be are these worries, obsessions, are these fears concerning you so much that they're causing some distress within you, within your family unit, within your relationship? Is it basically causing problems and it's something that you want to work on? And then finally, we have that um, clinical impairment. So impairment would be, I'm so wrought with worry and obsessions and anxiety that I'm not able to to do the things I want to do. I can't take care of myself. I can't take care of my loved ones. There's some type of impairment
0: here. That's a really interesting way to look at it. So impairment could be oh I needed to go to work but I felt so stressed or worried that I I felt I couldn't drive the car safely for example it's like Mm -hmm. is that what you mean absolutely it stops us doing the things that we need to do in our in our life is that is that fair to say
1: Mm mm-hmm And it can come up in so many different ways. I'm even thinking of examples in a relationship context of, you know, I'm so anxious about my relationship. I don't know 100% if this person is for me. I really, I think they're for me, but I just want to be 100% sure. That's really the the beast at the end of the day when it comes to anxiety and when it comes to OCD in particular is this need to be 100% sure. We call it an intolerance of uncertainty. You know, I, 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 I'm I, pretty sure that this is the person that I'm supposed to be with for the rest of my life. I'm pretty sure that I love my person or I'm pretty sure that they would never cheat on me, but I just need to know 100%. And the difficult thing is, is that we can never know anything 100%. Um, especially when we are involved in a relationship. That's an interesting dynamic. We're involving someone else and we can't know anything about them 100%.
0: It's a really great way to look at it, Jenna. I was just thinking about what you were saying because the other person is by definition, another person who has got their own priorities and life and stresses and things going on. So if our our peace of mind is gonna be reliant on that other person behaving in a certain way or doing a certain thing, we're sort of right to be anxious in a way, because we just can't control the other person, can we? Mm
1: -hmm. And and I think, you know, there's this myth that, oh my gosh, that means then I have to be 50% sure of my relationship and 50% unsure. That's not what I'm saying, right? Like I've been with my husband for 10 plus years, and I'm pretty dang sure that he is the one for me. I love him dearly. And no issues here, but I'm also not going to bet $3 billion on it or bet my son's life on it either, you know? Like, I I don't know anything for sure. Mm. Stranger things have happened. And, you know, I'm not just 50% faith, you know, um, hopeful or optimistic about my relationship. I'm, I'm pretty high up there, but, but 100% is what people with OCD and anxiety are striving for. And it's just, it's, it's, it's never going to happen. It continues to raise the bar and raise the bar and raise the bar. I see. Would you
0: say it's connected to perfectionism in a way? Would you say there's any relationship with that and perfectionism?
1: So there have been lots of studies and just clinical, you know, interpretations of given what we know about the anxious population, especially those who are disordered and presenting for treatment and the OCD population, there do tend to be some common, we call them, you know, cognitions or, you know, patterns of thinking that people with OCD and anxiety are more likely to fall victim to or be vulnerable to. So, you know, there are certain themes to how their brains work versus the non-anxious or the non-obsessive compulsive disordered population so of course there are always exceptions but for the most part yes people who have OCD and anxiety especially in the disordered sense they do tend to be more perfectionistic they do tend to have unrealistic um, and unwavering unrelenting standards for what it is that they find to be important they tend to also want to control their thoughts so if they have a bad thought about their relationship they Feel the need to kind of get rid of that thought and make everything right and make everything good. Um, they tend also to take responsibility for certain thoughts. So, if I was walking, you know, in the supermarket and I saw someone who I thought to be, you know, was attractive, I would have that thought that we can't really stop, right? We're human. I might have that thought that, wow, that person is attractive. I can move on. I can have a thought, notice it and just keep moving. Mm. Somebody with OCD and anxiety, they will latch on to that thought more than likely and take responsibility for it. Oh my gosh, what does that mean about me that I had that thought about that person? Does that mean, you know, that that I'm not as attracted to my partner as I thought that I was because I was attracted to this other person? That must mean that XYZ right so they just have this over importance of thought as well they 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 put a lot of bank into what their thoughts mean versus just this generic understanding that every once in a while our brains have spam thoughts and we can't necessarily explain it or we don't and we don't have to explain it or understand it Um, but generally people with OCD do kind of fall victim to those mentalities which make you know, it it can exacerbate, as you can imagine, so many problematic symptoms.
0: Mm, Absolutely. And if you're having those symptoms, and I'm sure there are others as well that we could talk about, how, how do they typically then affect the quality of your life and maybe the quality of your relationships?
1: Oh, my gosh. So... OCD and anxiety are, are think, I think, notorious for being very insidious. So that is to say, like, it starts as maybe like very well intentioned and just saying like, honey, when are you going to be home tonight? Or, you know, maybe you confess this. You had this weird dream about your high school boyfriend and you feel guilty about it. So you have to confess that to your husband. It starts out really kind of well-meaning and and you know not really seemingly that big of a deal but doing these little compulsions or safety behaviors these things that kind of make you temporarily feel better about it it just reinforces that that was a bad thing in the first place you know that oh my gosh good thing you told your husband about that dream you had about your high school boyfriend because otherwise that would have been really bad you shouldn't have told him that so now your brain kind of gets that message Okay, anytime you have any type of dream or any type of thought, you're going to have to confess that to your partner too. I see. And so it's really insidious. It obviously just snowballs and snowballs within that person, but obviously it can affect the other person and people in the relationships too. So, you know, I'm thinking especially just, you know, someone with OCD and anxiety may constantly be going to their loved one, asking for reassurance, like, is it okay that I had that thought? You know, I'm really doubting this, I really want to talk to you about it. And, you know, just involving them in what are probably really well intentioned attempts at feeling better. But they just work to make things worse in the long run. Because at the end of the day, there, these are all attempts at trying to get certainty. But what we need to actually sit with is that we're never going to know these things one hundred percent, and we have to be okay with that and still be able to live a life that we value without needing to be one hundred percent certain.
0: So that leads me on to my next question, and you've partly answered it, I think, Jenna already. But if my partner or even myself was suffering from anxiety, like let's say in a relationship, you just said, okay, so maybe I might be asking for lots of reassurance. You know, what other signs might there be that my partner was suffering from anxiety?
1: So it would be a lot of repetition for sure, right? So any of these things, you know, we all do on a day-to-day basis. I avoid things. I will, you know, ask my husband for reassurance about X, Y, and Z. But it's every once in a while, right? So I'm not meeting those three kind of You know check boxes that we talked about before it's not taking up an hour plus a day it's not you know distressing to me it's not distressing to him to my knowledge and it's not causing any type of impairment right i'm still able despite any worries or anxieties that i have i'm still able to kind of put that on the back burner and attend to my work attend to our child so on and so forth um and so if you're hearing from a loved one um and they're just presenting to you. They're, they're asking the same question over and over again. Um, and you might answer that question once, but, you know, a couple hours later or a couple of days later, it's just not enough and it's the same question. And that question becomes more relentless. And are you sure? Are you sure? How can you know?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, reassurance is tricky because it's always an unanswerable question. Like, do you love me enough? Like, um, how do I know if I'm actually, you know, happy enough in this relationship? Those those are kind of unanswerable questions. You can kind of give your best answer possible and have faith in the relationship. But faith is different from certainty. And usually what these individuals are wanting is certainty. They yeah. want to know 100 percent. I see. I and so I would be really on the lookout for like repetitive behaviors and asking the same questions over and over again. Mm. Well, I already answered that question. This person, there's, my loved one is still continuing to ask this question, what, what's going on here? Um, and you, you'll you'll start to probably notice the raising of that bar. Like, okay, I, I answered that question. She's asking it again. She's asking it more intensely. She's asking it in a, in a different way, maybe about a different scenario. Clearly my telling her the answer is not enough. We need to change our course of action.
0: I see, I get it. So- I I can see how easily with this sort of issue, it could become a cycle, you know, where the same question or a similar question and an answer just doesn't seem to resolve it. And that resonates so much with the kind of people when they reach out to us, they're quite often in some kind of a cycle like that. But the way you described it, it's quite a conundrum, isn't it? Because it's almost like as you frame it, the question you're trying to resolve is by definition, not really fully resolvable. So how do you how do you get around that how do you help people to sort of make sense of that
1: i would encourage them to consider all of the other ways in their life that they sit with uncertainty right so you know every time we get in the car we we accept a little bit of that uncertainty when we get in the car because we could get hit by a drunk driver or you know a terrible car accident or or so on and so forth so the reality is is that we roll the dice, so to speak, so many times throughout our life. And it and it's because we value you know, I I'm gonna I'm gonna be willing to drive my car despite the risks that are involved because it's worth it to me to have agency. I need to be able to pick up my son from school. I need to be able to go to the grocery store and not depend on someone else, so on and so forth. And so I think it's coming it comes down to You know we we sit with uncertainty in so many other areas of our life and it's not a problem right um and so it's kind of like the one area or the couple areas of your life where you're not accepting certain uncertainty that's where you're going to have a problem you know if you're not able to accept the uncertainty about your relationship or you're not able to accept the uncertainty about you know you know um your future together or whether you're happy enough in your relationship, whether this is the right one for you, that's going to be what, you know, kind of flusters your feathers because you're not tolerating that uncertainty. And it all comes down to, can we make calculated risks in order to pursue the life that we want and a life that we value? And I think so much, of anxiety is actually avoidance in disguise right anxiety it kind of makes us feel like we're solving a problem we worry about it we ruminate about it we ask our partner for reassurance a ton and we think that we're solving something um but but we're not actually solving anything we're not actually being functional in our problem solving so i think it also in addition to just highlighting the other ways that this person sits with uncertainty in their life and how it benefits them um I would also highlight that the way that they're trying to solve this problem of wanting to be more sure about their relationship, wanting to, you know, feel better about the, their future or whatever, that it's not actually problem solving. And if anything, it's probably making them feel worse mm. about their relationship, right? It's making them feel more anxious, causing more interpersonal conflict within the relationship, causing them to maybe feel more doubtful and more distressed. Um this is reminding me of a really cool research study that was done um, about OCD and anxiety. And it, it was kind of the traditional what we think of with OCD. It was, um, it was kind of measuring OCD and, and how many times someone goes back and checks their stove or checks their um, light switches or checks their faucets to make sure that they're off, right? They just want to be 100% sure that they're turned off. And so they would, they would measure how many times someone goes back into their home and checks their door to make sure it's locked, to make sure that their stove is off, whatever. They actually found that the more that these individuals checked, like the more frequently that they checked five times, ten times, 50 times, mm. the confidence in their memory went down, I see. which is actually phenomenally confusing, right? Because you would assume that, OK, I checked that stove five times. I checked it 50 times. I, I should probably be more sure of my memory and more confident in my memory the 50th time that I checked it versus the fifth time, mm-hmm. but that's actually, it has an inverse relationship. So it begs the idea of the more you check something, the less confident you are in your memory. And while that study specifically was about checking locks, checking stoves or whatever, We in in the OCD and anxiety community, we treat this all the same. We treat it as the doubt disorder. We don't treat, you know, checking stoves differently from checking in with your partner about where they are at night. It's the same mechanisms. It's kind of the same functions at the end of the day. And so... You know, that study goes to show that the more you check something, the more you do that internal inventory of how you feel or how attractive you are to your partner, the more you check in with your loved one about, you know, where they are at night or whether they were faithful, it it makes sense that that would make you feel better. But research shows that that actually makes you less confident. So moral of the story is the more you check something the less confident you're gonna be.
0: Such a powerful story. I, I love that, Jenna. And if I can throw in a relationship example that I hear all the time in our sort of technology-driven world is, you know, checking my partner's phone because to see who who he or she is messaging. And um, it, it's just worth maybe asking the question at that point, well, for every time you check their phone, does it make you any f- feel any better? I mean, do you actually feel secure when you when you're checking three times? How about if you check 10 times? What if you check 100 times? At the end of the 100th time of checking, how do you feel? And based on what you've just said, Janet, we shouldn't be surprised, which kind of it, it kind of makes sense in a way. It's like the more we check, the more we kind of embed the habit of checking.
1: And, it, and I can describe what's probably going on at a very, you know, bird's eye view level there, Please. right? So a person is having, let's just say, an intrusive thought about, oh my gosh, like my partner might be cheating on me. My partner might be whatever. So that's just a doubt. We all have those doubts. It's not the doubt that's the problem. It's our interpretation of the doubt as like, I need to know now. I need to do this. I can't move on without knowing this. And so then they go and do the safety behavior, call it a safety behavior, call it a compulsion, call it a ritual, whatever it is. But that safety behavior would be checking the phone that's going to temporarily make that person feel better. Like, okay, cool. Either I found something or I didn't, but at least now I know. What that does, and it's conscious, it's not conscious, right? Like it's not this verbal linguistic behavior of, okay, I know that now for next time. What's happening though, when you check that phone in that example, you're sending your message to, to the brain that basically says checking the phone is important. You couldn't tolerate not checking. So in the future, I'm going to be even more attentive to this phone, I'm going to make you even more anxious about the phone so that you check it more. Because obviously that was threatening. Obviously, you know, Jenna, you picked up the phone. Obviously that was important. So I'm my brain is going to say my job is to keep you safe. My job is to regulate your anxiety. And if that regulated your anxiety in the moment, we're going to do it more. And we're going to do it more. And we're going to do it more. And that's why in your example, they go from checking once to three times to 10 times. And so... That's when we'll see, yeah, it probably made you feel better in the moment, but is, is it getting you anywhere? Is this the yeah. life that you want to live and value? I
0: see. It's like a sticking plaster really, isn't it? Or a let's say a wallpaper over the crack, which doesn't actually solve the underlying problem, which I want to come on to in, in a while. Um, just just on that example, though, um, I'd love to talk about whether there's a spectrum here in terms of, you know, is there a level of Anxiety, or maybe I could say vigilance that is actually helpful or healthy, that is genuinely protecting us from something.
1: Sure. And I I think that all is relative to the situation, right? Like if our partner has a past of, you know, being unfaithful, of course, that person is probably going to say that they have a little bit more, you know, credence or logistical reason to be anxious. However, back to our conversation about, you know, is this problem solving or is it not? I, I'm a big fan of, okay, if, if, if this is the way that it is, this is taken a little bit from dialectical behavioral therapy, but there are only four solutions to any problem. Either you change the problem, you change your interpretation of the problem, you avoid the problem, you ignore the problem and, and you kind of, you know, I'm not, I just radically accept it and it is what it is, or you ignore it and you stay miserable. And that's actually the wording that um, Marshall Linehan uses under DBT, stay miserable. Yeah. So again, that's changing the problem, changing your perception of the problem, radical acceptance. So it is what it is and here I am and this is going to be the way that it is right now. I just accept things as they are or stay miserable. Mm. And so ritualizing and checking phones and you know asking for reassurance that doesn't fall in and anywhere other than maybe stay miserable right so you know unless the person wants to continue on that path and stay miserable i would encourage them to consider the other three options which are you know changing the problem so you are are you have doubts about your partner's you know past or you know there maybe there are legitimate difficulties in the relationship the, uh, there has to be other better ways of, of dealing with that functionally, whether that's with, you know, couples therapy or, you know, whatever that might be dealing with that, changing your perception of the problem or radical acceptance. Like, yes, my partner did have a history of being unfaithful. I have made the decision to stay with this person. And part of that decision is that I'm I'm not able like it, it's also not functional for the relationship, or for me, to continue to check mm-hmm. their phone. I with that said, I, I think it changes so much with the timeline of the relationship too, like when you're starting to just get to know someone. Um, I see a lot of times people struggle too, like after that honeymoon phase when they move in together and you know they just need a little bit of space from each other. Um, it's, all, it's all kind of complicated, but mm-hmm. yes, the goal is not to have no anxiety. I see. The goal is just to make sure that you are, for the most part, living a life that you value, that you are guiding and that your values are guiding your decisions over your fear. I just don't want people, and and unfortunately it happens all the time, where fear is dictating their behaviors and it takes them away from a life that they value. Mm,
0: I see, thank you, thank you. Uh, The next thing I want to ask is really two questions in one. And well, let me explain where I'm coming from when you answer um, how you see fit. Um, You know, I work a lot with men, Uh, Rebecca, as you, you've already met Rebecca, she works a lot with women. So I've, I just want to explore whether the issues or challenges might be a bit different for men compared to women. I know we can't always generalize, but sometimes we can, you know, and we can say, well, typically in these situations, people deal with things differently. Um, and it also maybe relates back to the previous question, because I had a conversation with someone recently where his partner had, had an affair like last year sometime, and he was talking about the time when she was having this affair. And I was asking him, so what was going on? You know, was there anything different at that time? Were there any warning signs that maybe you just ignored or? And he was like, well, yeah, actually looking back, there were quite a few because I'd walk into the room and she'd like cover her phone. You know, she'd hide it, you know, and sometimes she'd be much later back from work compared to what she would normally be and didn't really have a real um, explanation. There, wasn't, there didn't seem to be a good reason why she was so late back. So looking back, do you know what, there probably were some warning signs, but I just kind of ignored it. And that just struck me when you were speaking, it's been a bit like the opposite of what you're describing, because he almost, he was almost a bit asleep at the wheel, if you, if you will. It's like he almost needed to be a little bit more vigilant or anxious or aware. So I don't know, what do you think about that? And particularly in terms of men and women, do you see any differences?
1: I don't know that we know enough about like relationship OCD to know the differences. I hope that one day we do. I hope that one day we do have enough, you know, people who are willing to talk about it so that we can pull from their experiences. But knowing what we know about men and women and just basic, you know, sex and gender differences in relationships, I wouldn't be surprised if, to your point, men were historically or more so you know, obsessive or worried or anxious about um, violations in like a more intimate sense versus women being more fearful and obsessive or anxious about, you know, the quality of the relationship, right? So there's been research that shows that men are more anxious about like physical, um, affairs you know with sex like they're much more concerned about physical affairs and having sex and you know kissing and stuff like that whereas women are generally more fearful of you know emotional affairs or their husband having feelings for someone else um like they would be more willing to forgive um certain uh breakdowns of the affairs and so on and so forth based on their gender and i think a lot of that has to do with evolution right like women um you know sustaining that relationship has a lot to do with the quality of their relationship and their emotions and their connection whereas men you know from a biological standpoint they're much more interested in making sure that their person isn't cheating on them in a physical sense that they're not taking care of a child that's not theirs um and so i don't want to extrapolate too much but i I would not be surprised based off of that research if men in the relationship sense if they had more of a trend to be more anxious and fearful and worried about like physical intimacy um, difficulties, Mm. whereas women may be more interested or worried or anxious about like the quality of the relationship and being together, you know, 80 years from now, so on and so forth.
0: So maybe anxiety about different things, but on the whole, would you say that anxiety, OCD, affects men and women roughly equally? Or do you think there is any any gender difference at all
1: I think when we think about OCD and anxiety in general I think there are some historic differences as far as subtypes so um, I believe men are more likely to present with like harm intrusive thoughts and sexual intrusive thoughts whereas women um, may present with other themes like relationship OCD uh, maybe perfectionism so on and so forth but um you know at the end of the day like I said we kind of treat this all like the doubt disorder you know it is a disorder of doubt it's a disorder of doubt it's an intolerance of uncertainty um and I think it also you know probably goes without saying but generally men have such a harder time getting into treatment and in coming forward to talk about those things so you know like i said hopefully we know more as we get more men and women to come forward and talk about relationship anxieties and worries and obsessions we can know more about it but i wouldn't be surprised if those are the trends that we eventually start to see
0: i see and do you think that there's maybe some stigma for men around getting treatment you know maybe that they're suffering more than let's say the statistics might say because they tend to just deal with it or try to deal with it any any evidence of that or thoughts about that uh, jenna
1: absolutely i would not be surprised at all if we saw that you know men were actually struggling at a much greater rate and more frequent rate than what is currently being described um that's for ocd and for generalized anxiety disorder i think also for just mental health conditions in general um especially to present with anxiety i think is not necessarily as um easy or as open or welcome um or as warm of a welcome in society as it as it might be for women it's hard for everyone to do let alone men um who are kind of you know generically taught like be tough and try to be like the foundation of the family the the foundation of the relationship so on and so forth um Mm -hmm. but yeah especially with ocd it's hard in general to talk about you know we're talking a lot about relationship OCD right here, but it's also difficult, I think, to talk about harm intrusive thoughts. That's another element of OCD that we haven't talked about. Sexual intrusive thoughts are really difficult to talk about for women. And I think even more so for men. Mm,
0: interesting. It, yeah, it's really in, important subject. I mean, this is probably a different interview or a different session, but, uh, you know, we know that, that men affected by things like suicide, certainly in the UK at a much higher rate, so yeah, it's probably linked. To these sort of mental health type, type issues. So thanks for that. Um, I was gonna ask as well, Jenna, I'd love to hear about your own story a bit. I know you've spent so much time and energy researching and helping people in this area around OCD and anxiety. What was your own journey to becoming so fascinated and passionate about it?
1: So I always start out by saying, I've always been an anxious kid. Like anxiety was my first friend who was always there um i remember even when i was in kindergarten you know scary first day of school i would get nauseous and nervous how who am i going to sit next to at lunch who am i going to talk to what if the teacher calls on me but i always knew that things were easier if i just bit the bullet and i just ripped off the band-aid and i just did it so you know even from a very early age i would go up to the person that i was most scared to say hi to and i would say hi to them or i would offer to read first in class versus just like waiting in a scared corner by myself for the teacher to call on me and so it was always it always came naturally for me to challenge my anxiety um to be kind of a little bit competitive with it um and I, I valued doing hard things. And so when I went to college and I learned about exposure and response prevention, ERP, it's a gold standard uh, evidence-based treatment for OCD and anxiety. It, it's not just for OCD, it works for anxiety, it works for phobias, social anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder. Um, It's all about, you know, exposing yourself to fears and trying not to do those safety compulsions that would otherwise make you feel good. Um, And I just, I was like, this is what I have to do. I I have to do it. This is perfect for me. This is everything I want to do. And so from then on, every research paper, every internship, every poster, everything was always about exposure and response prevention. It was always about anxiety, always about OCD. So i went on to just really specialize in that went to grad school and focused on ocd and related conditions i worked a lot with hoarding um i spent a lot of time i got my dream job for the past eight years i was working at um, rogers memorial hospital in the united states Uh, it's one of two or three residential recovery units for ocd and anxiety so um, residential meaning they literally these individuals pack their bags from all over the world and they come and they live with us for 45 to 60 days and it's intensive 24 7 treatment um and so it was some of the most debilitating cases of ocd and anxiety in the world um but it was also really fascinating to be able to be part of their journey and and see them recover um and then now i work at nocd we are a teletherapy platform um and we provide services to people who have ocd and um I've just gotten, you know, within the past couple of years since I've been at OCD especially really interested in the the various subtypes and you know learning more about relationship OCD. I feel like our my focus for so long was on like getting people to eat because their OCD was so impactful and so devastating to them. I was just focusing on getting them to eat, getting them to take their medications. Um, Now that I work more on an outpatient basis, it's a little bit easier to like actually get into the nitty gritty and um, really start to, you know, just have a bigger, uh, more expansive understanding of all these different areas. So it's really exciting.
0: Exciting. Great. Thanks for sharing that, Janet. Just going back to the point around uh, exposure response prevention, that's what I, I heard this methodology. From what you said, I'd love to hear a bit more about it, but is it, connected to what you hear people say you know feel the fear and do it anyway has it got something in common with that
1: absolutely so you know it's you can get down to the nitty-gritty of it right like there are some scientific and you know very structured elements to it but If we're talking basics, that's what it is. It's feeling the fear and doing it anyway. It's um, having courage and not waiting until you feel right or not waiting until you feel comfortable to do it anyway. It's, you know, having those anxiety provoking experiences of, oh my gosh, I really want to check his phone. I really want to check his phone, but I'm I'm not. I'm not going down that rabbit hole. I don't want to do that anymore. That's not within my values anymore. Um, and sitting with that anxiety and literally kind of like riding that wave of that anxiety and sitting with those urges and just letting time pass, allowing yourself to be uncomfortable. And really committing to the response prevention, which is not picking up the phone Mm. in that situation. I see. And so a couple things happen. Um, We know from, you know, tons of cognitive research and brain studies that we can change our brains. We can actually, you know, influence the neural networks. We have neuroplasticity. So we can change our brains as long as we learn in a repetitive and consistent fashion. And so... This person is not going to be able to just change everything without you know i I didn't check the phone one time everything is better they're going to need to not check that phone for weeks for potentially ever right they're going to need to change that behavior and have that consistency Mm. um but yeah it's 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 amazing it's gold standard um it's actually the most well-researched and most effective treatment for ocd and anxiety more effective for ocd and anxiety than any other treatment for any other disorder so if you can't tell i'm a big nerd for it (laughs) (laughs) and it works it's really it really works and it teaches people it's all about like i don't want my fear to dictate my decisions anymore like i i'm i'm taking ownership over this like i'm going to regain the territory that anxiety took from my life
0: fantastic and I'm, i'm sure having seen so many people benefit from it naturally you want to share it and help other people with that. That's completely uh, understandable and um and great to see your passion and enthusiasm i wanted to ask as well jenna about just coming back to relationships um you shared that you've had you've experienced this yourself this anxiety and i just wondered what your thoughts were in terms of relationships do anxious people tend to get into relationships with each other or do you tend to have one person that's more anxious and the other not so anxious, would you say?
1: It's such a fascinating question, and I don't know what the literature would say, but I swear I see it so often, and it's the case with myself for sure. I see really highly anxious individuals being drawn to, or you know, being partnered up with individuals who are like quite unflappable and quite you know not anxious at all. That's exactly how my husband is. Um, and I mean, obviously, it can go either way, right? There, there's so many like volumes and you know experiences that can happen. Um, I think there are pros and cons to both. If an anxious person is in a relationship with someone who's not as anxious, maybe that person doesn't understand. Um, maybe they can also be like a calming presence for them, right? Like maybe they're not gonna you know, feed off of each other's anxious energies, so on and so forth. Whereas if two anxious individuals are together, maybe they can resonate with each other. They can relate to each other's experience, but maybe they're also giving into each other's reassurance all the time and making things worse so I, I don't know what actually happens more often but I swear I see in my own experience with people I tend to see people who are anxious being with people who aren't anxious I, see. I don't know if that's better yeah but I'm I'm sure it happens all over the place it, it, we
0: may not be we may not have the research to back it up but there does seem to be some logic or some let's say yeah you, there's some logic in what you're saying you know because I guess two anxious people together, Well, how how could they affect each other how how could that anxiety develop if your partner is also anxious maybe about the same things or maybe about other things um you know could the anxiety be a bit infectious you know what do you think
1: right i so there is a really nerdy graph that all of you can go out and and look up um but it's called the yerkes dodson curve so y-e-r-k-e-s slash dodson curve um and this basically it's kind of like a bell curve so it starts out really small and then it gets bigger and then it um kind of it's like a hill um and it's essentially the relationship between anxiety and performance so if you look it up There's great explanations of it online. It's been so historically well-researched, but the Yerkes-Dodson Curve essentially states that low levels of anxiety equal poor performance. And I think we can all resonate with that, right? Like a test. If we're not anxious about a test and we don't care about it, we're probably not going to perform very well because we don't care about it. We don't, we're not anxious enough to be moved to action, at the other end, you also see really, really high levels of anxiety equate to low performance. Mm. And again, I think that that would happen with any test, right? I think so many of us can resonate with that. If we're super, super anxious about a test, we're going to put that sucker off and we're not going to want to study for it. And we're going to, you know, freak ourselves out. And we're going to actually end up having really poor performance, even though we are really anxious about it. What that actually means, though, is that we have the highest performance when we're moderately anxious and make it about a test make it about a job interview make it about a relationship i think having a moderate level of anxiety about things in general and certainly the yerkes dodson curve would support this having a moderate level of anxiety will most likely lead you to have the best performance and so potentially having, you know, someone who is highly anxious in a relationship balanced by someone who's not as anxious, you kind of have that moderate anxiety, right? Like you're anxious enough to care about things, but you're not so debilitated by your anxiety that you have low performance. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I would not be surprised if that would be the result of such a study. I wouldn't be surprised at all.
0: Excellent. Thanks for sharing that. It does seem to make some sense. And it's also very empowering because it makes you realize that there's not not actually anything wrong necessarily with some level of anxiety maybe it could even be a strength it's just when it becomes as you said dysfunctional or stops us doing the things that we need to need to do so that's really a great message if we didn't
1: if we didn't have anxiety we would be dead (laughs) Hmm. we wouldn't look both ways before we cross the street we wouldn't um You know, we wouldn't want to be involved in these relationships. We wouldn't analyze our relationships that are meaningful to us. If we if we could just like remove every anxiety, bone or muscle or neuron in our body, we would be like skulls of ourselves. Right. We we would have nothing. We would also not have the really beautiful emotions and opportunities that we have. So because of anxiety, yeah, we are able to have those in-depth relationships. We do have things that matter to us. So we're never going to be able, and we don't want to get rid of it completely. We just want to be able to hone it in, keep it in that moderate range, and make sure that we can have anxiety. It can have a place in the car, but but make sure that you're in the driver's seat.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And for people that feel that maybe it's a bit out of control or their anxiety is affecting the quality of their life or the relationship, what are some things that People could do today, you know, to start having an effect on that, to help themselves. Help
1: themselves. So there are so many great resources out there. Um, I think like podcasts are great, you know, finding podcasts like yours. There are so many other wonderful podcasts out there. Um, just free resource and free education. I think so much of anxiety and OCD recovery starts with really good education. Just understanding that you're not alone, that there's nothing wrong with you, that you're not going quote unquote crazy. Um, and just really understanding the ways that your brain works and how all of these things function. I think that eliminates a lot of the Um, you know, self-deprecation that we tend to do on ourselves. Um, It gives ourselves an opportunity to practice that self-compassion. So learning would be the first step. Um, The iocdf.org website is super helpful when it comes to just learning more about it. They have um, a lot of resources. Actually, I think divided by content like there's actually probably a relationship um like resource section so i think that would be super helpful for anyone out there who feels like this resonates um and i would also encourage people to download our no cd app it's free um no gimmicks no nothing no like seven day trial um even if you don't do therapy with us which is totally fine we know not everyone can access it but there's tons of free resources um I'm on there often. I do lots of webinars on there for educational purposes. Um, There's an in-app community, so you'll go on there and you'll instantly have a ton of people um, who understand you and who are posting about relationship OCD. Therapists also try to post there and give encouragement. It's really great. Um, But my favorite thing for people who especially have relationship OCD we have what's called uh, an sos function it's like when you're really struggling and you are like really having a hard time you're really panicking and you don't know what to do we have an sos function and there's actually a relationship ocd um kind of tab there where you can go and it's one of our therapists and actually it's dr patrick mcgrath he's one of the most world-renowned experts when it comes to ocd and anxiety and it's actually dr mcgrath talking you through like I don't want to call it a a guided meditation because that's not what it is, but it's kind of just talking you through, giving you some encouragement like in that moment. And it's, I've heard it's super, super helpful. So I would encourage people to do all those things, really hone in on the education, just open yourself up to learning more, um, and download our free app. I think that's great. And then also, um, you know, just try try to reduce those rituals any way you can even if you postpone checking your partner's phone for five minutes um you know postponing it is better than doing it right away Mm. so even if you can't resist it completely try to baby postpone it or play around with stuff like that but um yeah our app is treat my ocd um, on the app store free um, and lots of really really great content out there
0: Fantastic. Thank, thanks, Jenna. And we'll include links to your site as well. And I know you're on social media, you've got your own podcast, so people can follow you there. What's the best place for people to, to find out about more, more about you personally?
1: Yeah, I always forget about my own stuff. Um, But yeah, I do. I also have a podcast. It's called All the Hard Things. So if you're curious about learning more about OCD, I also do have a specific relationship OCD episode. I believe I I tend to do it always on Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day tends to be a triggering time for people um, who have that subtype. So um, All the Hard Things and then I'm over on Instagram at jenna.overba. So lots of more education there as well.
0: Okay, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining us. And please remember to subscribe and to leave us a review.
1: Who could you share this episode with that needs to hear this message?
0: Share this episode and remember that the quality of your relationship determines the quality of your life.
1: See you on the next episode.